Let's turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. As we continue to look at the tabernacle. I'll read verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Father in heaven, uh, this morning we choose the good way. We choose to come and open your word to look to see what you have said, to heed your voice in the scriptures, your voice in written form. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us your ways and your testimonies. We know that you are good. We know that you do good. And so we humbly come and ask for your help as we seek to understand you better and the Lord Jesus better. And in your holy name we pray. Amen. We have to get the gospel right. We have to get the gospel right. We live in a world that gets the gospel wrong. What is the gospel? Paul says this in in 1 Corinthians. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. The the core of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, are those five words. Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully man, fully God, two natures, one person, born without a sinful human nature, lived a sinless life, died. He did not come to be an example of how we should live. He did not come to tell us how wonderful we are. He came to die. A year, two years into his ministry, he set his face toward Jerusalem, and he began telling his disciples over and over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be 
taken and I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified and on, on the third day I'll be raised from the dead. He always told them that. They never heard that because they were so shocked at his words, I'm going to die. But he told them that repeatedly. The word for. See, Jesus' death had a reason It was not a random occurrence. He was not simply a victim of religious hatred or of political maneuvering on the part of Rome. His death was for a reason. The word our is a word we don't like. Jesus died for someone else. Jesus died for the bad people. Jesus died for the others who really needed it. I've had people say to me, I don't want someone to die for me. Even worse, I've had people say to me, I don't need someone to die for me. Well, since the death of Jesus Christ at Calvary is a historical reality, if you're elect, he has died for you. And you can't change that. And then finally, sins. We really don't like this word. The world rejects this world, this word. Even many who claim to be Christians reject this word and they change the reason Jesus died. Jesus died to save us from other people. Jesus died to save us from sickness. Jesus died to save us from poor self-esteem. If you think I'm making that up, that's exactly what Robert Schuller taught. That's exactly what Joel Osteen teaches. Jesus died so you would know how wonderful you are. Jesus died for our sins. That's the gospel. Jesus died as a holy sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. But the heart of the gospel is Jesus died for our sins. It was only because he died for our sins that he was buried. It was only because he was buried that he was raised to glory. So if you want to know how, just as, as a parenthetical thing, if you want to know how to share the gospel with somebody, just remember five words. Christ died for our sins. And unpack those words for them and you can share the gospel with them. We have to get the gospel right. Now, many have no gospel. They're either atheists or they have other gods. They are lost in their sins. They're the ones the Bible calls Greeks or barbarians or pagans or Gentiles. And what's more, many have the wrong gospel. Many who claim to be Christians have the wrong gospel. They have the, they have the wrong gospel because they've added to it. That, that's what happened in the, the letter to the Galatians. Paul wrote to the Galatians and, and the Judaizers had come in and, and all they did was add one thing to the gospel. They added circumcision. And, and without being overly descriptive, circumcision is something that's only done once and it's only done to part of the population. So all they did was say, some of you have to go through one thing one time And Paul says, now you have a false gospel. When you add one thing, one time, to some, that makes it false. Because salvation is by grace through faith. Others take away from the gospel. They take away from the person of Jesus. And they they say he was a good man or he was a created being. Others take away from the gospel by, by making it a means of personal therapy or by hyphenating it. The hyphenated gospel, the social gospel, the black gospel, the feminist gospel, the prosperity gospel. They change the purpose of the gospel by hyphenating it. Well, 
we've got to get the gospel right. Much of the New Testament is about that, as Paul and Peter and others wrote these letters and said, you have to have the truth. And God gave us the scriptures. He gave us this picture of the tabernacle that we've been looking at as a reminder of what the true gospel is in our time. So how does it do that? Well, first of all, I'm not going to belabor this point because we've already talked about it, but the the tabernacle is a reminder of separation. When you came into the courtyard, the first thing you saw was the altar. The altar is, is a message. And the message of the altar is, you owe God your death. God said to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, you will not eat of the tree uh, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will die. In the moment Adam ate it, he died. Adam's physical death began in that moment. Adam's physical death was not done in that moment, but death began to work in Adam, and it began to work in all of us as well. We owe God a debt of death. You owe God your life. Not in, the, not in the generic figurative sense of, oh, I owe him so much, I owe him a life. No, you owe him your life. You owe him your death. And the altar said, you can't get close to God without acknowledging that debt. And for the time being, God will allow you to kill something else so that by another death, you can get close to God. But that separation of debt existed the bronze basin was a reminder between the altar and the tent was this, this bronze bowl that held water. The priests were to go and wash their hands and their feet every time they approached the altar, every time they approached the tent. Not once a day, not once a week, every time. And if they failed to do that, they would die. And it's not that that water in that basin could take away sin, could justify them. But going to that basin and washing every time was their acknowledgement before God, I'm unclean, I'm corrupt, I know that, I know I deserve judgment, I know I deserve death, and I know it's only your mercy that keeps me from dying. And so I wash my hands in acknowledgement of my sin. It's It's almost an act of confession. And then you have two veils. You have the veil that closed off the holy place, and then deeper inside, the veil that closed off the holy of holies so that people casually walking by could not look in they couldn't see in and anybody who who happened maybe to go to the altar to wash and maybe instead of turning to the right to go to the or to the basin maybe instead of turning right to go to the altar they they accidentally turned left they wouldn't find themselves walking in a forbidden place they would see the veil And the veil would stop them. And for those who were chosen to serve inside the holy place on the the morning and on the evening, they would always be aware that there was another veil and that behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant, the, the presence of God with them, and that they were separated from it. But the other thing that we see in the tabernacle is a promise of reconciliation. The altar was a picture of a permanent substitutionary death. Again, you come to the altar, the altar screams out, you owe God your death. But the altar is a promise that God would provide for you. Just as he provided a ram when he had commanded Abraham, you'll sacrifice your only son Isaac to me, take him up on the mountain, take him up on Mount Moriah. 
and Abraham was willing to do it. He had the boy bound. He had him laying on an altar. He had the knife in the air. And the angel of the Lord came down and said, No, stop. Now I know that you won't withhold your only son. But on the way up, you remember what Isaac said, Father, we have everything we need, but we don't have the sacrifice. And Abraham said, God will provide the sacrifice. And that's what God did. The altar in the, in the tabernacle is a picture of God saying, You owe me your death, but I will give you a permanent perfect substitute. The basin is a picture of permanent cleansing. That basin of water is a, a prophetic promise of God that full and perfect cleansing would be provided one day. This is a cleansing that doesn't need to be repeated over and over and over again, but a cleansing that is once for all time. The purpose of this cleansing, again, let me just give you a little parenthetical thought here. The purpose of this cleansing is not to make us feel better about ourselves. As Christians, we often come before the Lord, we come in prayer, we come in study of the word, we just think about our lives and we feel guilty. We, we do a thing or we think a thing and we feel bad. We, we feel guilty. And some of us, you reach a certain point of age, it's, it's nice when you're young because you can forget your mistakes and you, you really haven't made too many terrible mistakes and you can kind of let them go, but you reach a point in life where you realize, this is who I am. And those things are now like tattoos on me, and I, I can't ignore them. I don't know if you've seen pictures on, on the Internet or in the, in the paper, maybe not in the paper, but on the Internet and other things about these, these young people who tattoo their faces. And not just with designs, but with words and sometimes with profanity. It's like, what, what, are you, what do you think you're going to do for a living? You've marked yourself. Like Cain, so that everybody who sees you knows who you are. And our consciences are marked that way. But the cleansing of the altar, the cleansing Jesus provides, is not first and foremost for our conscience. He cleanses us of our legal and moral guilt before God. The Holy Spirit takes on the work of cleansing our conscience. That's a lifetime effort, and it, it's not going to be completed this side of eternity. And what that means is, <coughs> even with your faith in Christ, and even with your love for Him, and even in your confidence in Him, and your humility before Him, you retain this memory of the things you've done. But God said, as far as east is from west, I've separated your sins from you god says i have forgotten them that that word when he says in isaiah i have forgotten your sins that word means i have destroyed them and and so it's it's kind of a trite saying but people have said you go before the lord and you say lord i remember those sins and god says what sins but there's a truth to that even when your conscience remains Wounded from your past actions. The promise of God is that you're clean. And we continue to live by faith. Then I say that I'm not judged by my conscience. I'm judged by what God has said. And then the veils to the holy place and the holy of holies are, are pictures of access. They're veils, right? They're not slabs of stone. They're veils that can be parted. The very existence of those veils is a prophetic promise in the tabernacle that one day 
permanent access would be possible. Now, what nobody in the wilderness could have comprehended or understood was that one day access would be provided on the basis of the death of Jesus and the cleansing of his blood, which is depicted in the altar and the basin. And that access would be provided to men and women of every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and every kindred on the face of the earth. Through the death of Jesus Christ, that's the altar. Through the cleansing of his blood, that's the basin. We are allowed to come into Christ through faith. That's that veil. And what do we find inside? We find the bread of life and we find the light of the world, and we find an, a, 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 a table of incense that was square, and that incense represents prayer, and we find even in, in, even in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus mediates as an intercessor. And in Hebrews chapter 7, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. We come through his blood at the altar, or his death at the altar, his blood at the basin. We come through the veil of faith into a relationship with him where we have been made alive by the bread of life. We have the light of the world living with us. And we have Jesus as our own mediator opening the way into the inner tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of of God. And so we draw near with confidence. Hebrews 4:16 says, "Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Those veils have been removed. If you look at Hebrews 9:11 and 12 with me, we'll move a little bit more this morning. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. I really encourage you to take your pen and underline or circle the words eternal redemption. And highlight the word obtained. Jesus obtained eternal redemption. It doesn't say he sought eternal redemption. He looked for eternal redemption. Or he tried to find eternal redemption. It says he obtained eternal redemption for us. He completed the work. He finished it. He offered himself on the cross for our sins. He took his own blood to heaven. He offered his own blood, his own death in the tabernacle in heaven to provide eternal, permanent redemption. A once for all time redemption. So once for all time, meaning that it covers the entire span of your existence. From the moment of your conception, you were a child of Adam. Ephesians 2 says, a child of wrath. But the redemption we have goes all the way back to that very moment of conception. And because it's once for all redemption, and because it's eternal redemption, it extends into your eternal existence in Christ. One redeemer, one act of redemption. 
He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7.25 says. Ecumenism, which treats all religion essentially the same, is very popular in our world. But only Jesus Christ can save. And we should not only avoid fellowship with those who deny that truth, We should hate doctrines and hate teachings that diminish Christ and dilute the gospel and try to reach out to those people. Even if they say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe he died for me. I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe I need him for salvation. They're lost in their sins. Now, somebody will say to me, but you don't have the right to tell somebody else that their beliefs are wrong. Well, two things. Number one, if you say to me, I don't have the right to tell somebody else their beliefs are wrong, you're telling me my beliefs are wrong. So evidently there is that right. But for another thing, we're commanded by Scripture to speak the truth in love. If we care about people, if we care about their eternal state, if we really believe that hell is real, then we won't simply smile at somebody with false belief and say, well, it's okay. It's not okay. Show me in Scripture where it's okay, and we can go that way, but it's not there. There's one name given under heaven whereby men must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul told the Greeks in Athens, you're worshiping false gods. It's why he says to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, he calls them mindless. Eugene Peterson in his uh, paraphrase, the message starts out Galatians chapter 3 with the words, dear idiots of Galatia. Because they had missed it by so much. We have to have the gospel right and the The tabernacle is a picture of the truth. Well, let's let's bring this home. Let's bring this home this morning. God keeps his promises. The Old Testament scriptures were given for our encouragement. They encourage us because of them, because in them we see God at work among his people, making promises and keeping promises over and over and over again. We see the judgment against the wicked. In, in small ways, I mean the flood, that's a pretty big way. You kill everybody except Noah and his wife and his sons and their, their wives. But he didn't kill everybody. He left them alive. And that's a picture of the judgment to come. We see a picture of the mercy of God with Noah, with Abraham, with Jonah, with David, with Moses, with Aaron. The list goes on and on and on of the mercy of God towards sinners because that's all that God has ever worked with is sinners. And we see that in the scriptures. And we see the pictures paint a terrible, dark, bleak picture of humanity that that often seems to not be our experience. We can be really, really grateful that in the light of the floods and the light of the damage, people have stepped up to serve and to give and to sacrifice time and money and effort in order to reach out. That's an awesome thing. That's a wonderful thing. 
But the, the final bottom line picture of mankind is dead in sin. Apart from Christ, lost. God is not going to look at those who have stood in rebellion and, and violated his law and say, oh, but you, you took water to somebody. We owe him a death, our own death. Now, why does Scripture paint such a dark picture of us? In order to show us that salvation is purely on the basis of grace through faith. That when God saves, He doesn't save because we deserve to be saved. He saves us because we need to be saved and because we're helpless. God kept the promise of the tabernacle. He gave His people in history a tent, just a simple tent. It was not nearly as permanent as this building. It was not as nice as this building. There's no heater. There's no air conditioner. There's no carpeting. There's no padded chairs. There's no running water in the sink. Remember all the times they had to go beat on rocks and ask God to give them water? There's no grocery store down the street. And yet in that tent was a picture of our redemption. And God made a promise in that tent And he kept that promise. And the work of Jesus Christ to fulfill that promise has changed everything. In that day, if you wanted to come before the Lord, you could only come so far. You came into the courtyard and you went to the altar and you brought your animal and the priest offered your animal on the altar after he'd gone to the basin. And then he came back and then you left. You could never get near the basin. Certainly you could get ne- never get near the tent, never inside. But now, by faith in Jesus Christ, we come to him and we go to the altar and we don't say, I bring a sacrifice. We say, Jesus is my sacrifice. His sacrifice is done. It's right there. We go to the basin and we say, Jesus' blood filled that basin and he has made me clean. I don't need to keep coming back. He cleansed me once for all. And we go to the entrance of the holy place and there's no veil. And we go in and there's the bread of life and the light of the world and there's Jesus mediating for us. And then we see the veil and it's been torn in two, top to bottom, and we see the Ark of the Covenant. We see the person of Christ waiting for us. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 366 in leap year. Every time you come before the Lord. Do you know this? When you're driving down the road and you hear about that person who just died. Or a baby who's been born. And you say, Lord, I lift up the family of of this man, of this woman. And I ask that you would comfort them. Do you know that what you've done when you even addressed him was come straight to the Ark of the Covenant? Straight to the throne of grace. Please be encouraged to take this seriously, to think about this and to meditate on this. Please let your heart break for those who don't know this or who don't believe it, for the labor that they still do because they're they're still going to the tabernacle. Please let your heart rejoice that you don't have to do that, that you don't have to do what 
Peter called a, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear in Acts 15? Please remember those five words. Christ died for our sins so that when you have opportunity, you can share those words. And when your own heart is heavy, and when you're wondering, what am I doing here? And why can't I get this right? And why isn't this working for me? Please understand, Jesus has done everything necessary. And he has provided every, everything necessary for life and godliness for you. And you don't stand out at the entrance to the tabernacle wishing that you could get close. In the very wishing you're doing, you're kneeling at his feet. Saying, I wish I could get closer. You can't get closer. You're there. Please believe that. Please commit yourself to rejecting anything that challenges that. And trust in the whole gospel of Jesus Christ and be prepared to share it. And rejoice as you read these words that are so old for us now, 2,000 years, and that went back 1,500 years from these to something we've never seen, this tabernacle and the altar and the basin and this and the poles. and It's so hard for us to understand, but God gave us that tent so that here, 3,500 years later, we could say, I see Jesus did this for me. He gave me a picture. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Father in heaven, I thank you for this truth. I thank you for the glory of your name. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for reaching far beyond your people Israel and embracing people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and kindred and bringing us to you as your children. Encourage our hearts this morning. Steady our hearts in you. Steady our feet on the word of Christ in Scripture. Give us mercy and pity and tenderness toward those who don't believe that we would come to you and beg you to act, that we would beg them to understand and believe. And we thank you for the precious gift of Jesus and for the gift of your word today. Amen.